Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the World Football Index Couple of Adores podcast. Um, as you've been listening to the first half, you realise we've cut it in two. So continue enjoying the pod, and sorry for the inconvenience. Okay, so let's let's move forward to. Well, I didn't see the game part of this game, but I saw the the, the good part of this game. <laughs> I'll stick with you, Austin. You you can talk us through first of all. Uh, Penyarol two, Palmeiras three. Palmeiras found themselves 2-0 down at halftime and fashioned yet another comeback. And I say, we'll, we'll, we'll cover the game first because I'm sure we'll all have uh, a little bit to say about what happened after it. Uh, some very sort of, very couple of adores, but very sort of unsavoury scenes after this particular game and, and some unsavoury incidents. But first of all, Austin, you can gush first of all about the game. Yeah, this was... A bizarre two hours, or I guess two and a half hours by the end of it, by the time Paul Maitis had closed out their press conferences. And it was weird because everything after the match, I think, deservedly so, overshadowed what was a very intriguing storyline. Paul Maitis came into this match, you know, as you said, they had the two late, late winners against Wilsterman and Peñarol at home. They were top of the group, but hadn't been convincing in doing so. On the road against an Uruguayan side that probably needed three points to feel good about themselves. You know, in a tough place to play, Montevideo, harsh harsh crowd to go up against. Uh, and Eduardo Baptista, the Palmeiras manager, who of course is not the manager who won the title with them last year, but he came in and replaced Kuka, who resigned at the end of last year's title winning campaign. Uh, he took a risk and he decided that he was going to go for a more defensive eleven. And start three center backs. So into the squad came Vitor Hugo alongside the Colombian Yerimina and Edu Dracena, who had been Palmeiras' two center backs. So he started Vitor Hugo, three at the back, Felipe Melo kind of sitting in front of them in a defensive midfielder. Uh, Cheche was on the bench, as was their second attacker, William, and it didn't work. It, it blew up right in his face. Uh, Peñarol had scored within 15 minutes on a play where Yerimina may have gotten fouled. There, there was a pullback on his arm by the goal scorer. Uh, but Mina went down way too easily under contact. The second he felt a tug, he kind of flailed his body out. Uh, and the Paraguayan referee, uh, Enrique Casares, was not having it. Peñarol got up 1-0. Uh, and then before we knew it, it was 2-0. And they looked like they were going to run away with this. At halftime, uh, myself and Ewan Marshall, who has done these pods before, and a couple other people on Twitter... We're starting the conversation. All right. How long does Eduardo Baptista have? You know, if this gets uglier, could it be, could it be curtains for him? Palmatis had suffered a somewhat embarrassing defeat in the semifinals of, of the Sao Paulo State League to Ponte Preta. They lost 3-0 away from home, gave up three goals in the first half. It left a bad taste. Um, and then to have two scored on them by Peñarol here and to be looking to head to a defeat, you know, there were questions being asked. Uh, to his credit, Eduardo Bautista realized that the, the initial game plan did not work at all. So he brought on two subs straight at halftime after 45 minutes. On came Cheche in the midfield and on came William in the attack. And over the next 45 minutes, it was a completely different Palmeiras side. Uh, William scored the opening goal on a very nice bit of skill. Miguel Borja, the Colombian attacker, headed one down for him. William flicked it up to himself and then kind of pulled it out of the air and, and pushed it by the goalkeeper from distance. It was a very well-taken goal. That got them back to 2-1. And then the star of this second half, it was William because he does finish this match with a brace. But for me, it was the right-back Jeanne for Palmeiras who provided the balls for this, the next two goals for Verdown. 
Uh, the second goal, Jayon had the ball about 35 yards from goal at an angle and just kind of whipped it into the box. Uh, and guess who was there? Of course, it was Yerry Mina, the center back, who was forward from a corner, and then that got kind of spilled out, and then Jayon had a chance to reset. Mina stayed forward. It was it was a ball that hung in the air for a long time. And if you let Yerry Mina run free in the box and get under a ball like that, he's probably going to finish. And he did. And that put it to 2-2. Uh, so now Palmatis had, had turned this around. They looked like they could get a point, but they weren't satisfied with that. And they went and they chased a third. It was a rebound off of a very good shot from outside the box from Alejandro Guerra. His shot was saved straight to the path of Jayon, who had a tight angle. Uh, the goalkeeper came out to shut off that angle. And rather than try to force a shot from that angle, Jayon made the unselfish play, passed it across the box, uh, and William was wide open to pass it in from the sit from inside the six. And then Palmeiras had turned the whole thing around. And they were 3-2 up. And then I really thought that they did a very good job of closing this match out. They held possession well. They, for the most part, did not allow Peñarol to create opportunities. Then finally, at the end, at about 93 minutes gone, Peñarol did create an opportunity. Fernando Pras, the Palmeiras goalkeeper, made a save, pushed it aside. Up came every Peñarol player for what was a corner. Uh, They took it. Palmeiras got it out. It was another corner. They brought everyone up again including their goalkeeper. Uh, they took that corner. It was sent out, and the final whistle blew. Palmeiras had turned it around. They had a 3-2 victory. Uh, they were on 10 points atop of Group 5. And that's when everything gets interesting. That's the result of that's the That's when game. they got the <laughs> shit beat out of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so during that final quarter, Palmeiras' attacker, William, suffered an elbow to the head, and he kind of went down in the box. Felipe Melo, uh, who is no stranger to controversy and always seems to find himself in the middle of everything had already received a yellow card earlier in the match, which accumulated to a suspension for him. He's now successfully picked up a yellow card in in three of the first four matches, which is unsurprising to anybody. He went to walk off with his arms raised and the Pinedo players kind of surrounded him. Uh, There had been allegations of racial abuse throughout I'm sure Felipe Melo didn't just take those. I'm sure he delivered his fair share of insults to the Peñarol players. They were clearly frustrated by their loss, um, and things kind of kicked off. Uh, Felipe Melo threw a punch at a Peñarol player, then proceeded to retreat to the far <clears throat> corner. When he was there, a, pen, a couple Peñarol players tracked him down. One picked up the corner flag to have a go at him, as if to use it as a sword, then maybe thought better of it. The Palmeiras players attempted to retreat to the dressing rooms, only to find that the dressing room corridor had been closed off by stadium security uh, due to a security issue, is what they had said in the wake of this after the match. And it was a free-for-all. There was pushing, there was shoving, allegations that an Uruguayan journalist attacked a Palmeiras player with a camera tripod. Palmeiras goalkeeper Fernando Pras was in the middle of it, uh, giving out words, shoving. He found himself surrounded by a couple Peñarol players. And then that trouble on the pitch kicked off into trouble in the stands. There had been some issues around halftime. Those seemingly resolved themselves. Uh, and then Palmeiras, you know, overturning things and getting the 3-2. Uh, Peñarol fans surrounded the Palmeiras away section, which was not properly secured. The advice was that there should be 60 security personnel within that section to, to guard against any trouble. Uh, there were 16, which is obviously way below that number. Peñarol fans attempted to break through the fence 
causing Palmetas fans to have to hold that fence closed to uh, keep Pendidol fans from being able to break into that section. Had they been able to get through, it could have gotten really bad. Um, Palmetas fans and security personnel who were not police, but rather just stadium employees charged with securing that area, began to throw things at each other. Trash bins were thrown by both sections there. Uh, and then finally, order was restored without any major violence between the fans, uh, which was very, very thankful because had Pennadol fans gotten in there, there's no telling what would have happened. Uh, and the Palmetas fans were able to be escorted out of there and safely get out without any major incident. And I think we need, we need to add into this, Austin, as well, the fact that there, I think there was two to four police officers on duty in the yep. whole, or, around the whole stadium. Yeah. Um, there was absolutely no security for this with... Well, and going into it, there was, you know, obviously we, we know now that Palmeiras took um, quite a large security detail with them uh, with this game in mind. So it kind of boggles the mind to think that there was four police officers uh, charged with looking after this game. Yeah. So Palmeiras, they knew that there could be something. As we said, it was a testy affair when these two teams met in Sao Paulo. A late winner for Palmeiras certainly left a bad taste in Peñarol's mouth. Felipe Melo accused them of, of racial insults and then had plenty to say after the match. So Palmetas usually travel with about four to six dedicated security personnel for these South American trips, you know, to secure the hotel, to be on the bus, to make sure no one can get on the bus, autograph seat, you know, mainly that sort of deal. But they probably tripled that for this trip. Around 20 had gone and they were tasked with protecting the Palmetas players. And when everything kicked off, they were the ones who opened up the gate to the dressing room and allowed the Palmetas players through. Once the Palmetas players got through, they formed a barrier and basically said that nobody, it doesn't matter who is getting through here, doesn't matter who you are, who you're with, you're not coming into our dressing room. Uh, and so once Palmetas players had that safety, they began to celebrate the victory. Understandably so, I think, given the emotion of the situation, that surely left a bad taste in the mouth of Peñarol players. It, it was a massive situation, and as I'm sure we'll get into here, there definitely appears like there's going to be some repercussions from Condable as far as suspensions are concerned. Just to uh, catch everybody up on the news of that from where we sit tonight on Friday night, Condable has said that four players will probably have provisionally received three match bans. That's Felipe Melo for Palmeiras and then a trio of Peñarol players, including their captain, Nandes. Uh, two others as well could have provisionally received these three match bans. They have not announced whether there is any provisional punishments against either of the clubs themselves, but those appear to be coming. Well, listen, I'll come across to Adam because obviously, you know, this poses real sort of questions around Peñarol and, and, you know, obviously their, their inclusion in this tournament could even be a question because the scenes that we saw, number one, there was absolutely no need for uh, had the, the proper stewarding ha been taking place, the proper policing have been taking place, it could have been brought to order, one would imagine, very much quicker. This escalated, escalated, continued then whenever they got into the, to the areas, the dressing room and the corridors underneath the stadium. It was continuing on. There was bartering backward and forward. And, you know, obviously all being beamed uh, live on television and some very unsavory words, some very unsavory actions that we probably don't want to see but as, as you know we, we spoke about it pre-pod emotions from me run high after that type of result that type of a comeback but uh you know in, in the aftermath of it once we got inside the stadium you know palmeiras players really didn't sort of cover themselves in glory either uh stooping really down to the level of the others but you know felipe Melo, 
swung two punches, um, regardless of whether he's right or wrong and the other actions, that, that constitutes a ban for me. But I think maybe the biggest question I have is is, is over Peñarol as a club. Yeah, definitely. And, and at first I was critical of both sides. But kind of the more I think about it and like having looked at more and more footage as well, yeah, I'm certainly getting to the point now where you've got to say probably like 90% of the fault is with Peneral. I think I think a ban is probably coming their way. Yeah, Peneral, I think we might not see them in the Libertadores for one or two years now. I think Commonwealth have to really crack down on this sort of thing. Violence has been a big problem in Uruguayan football for a few years now. We've seen Clasicos, Super Clasicos there in in, in Montevideo between Penarol and, and Nacional uh, suspended just last year uh, for violence in the stands. And the fact that the players uh, were being violent on the pitch seemed to kind of spark a very dangerous situation in the stands in this match. And I think really that is, you know, that, that's really unacceptable from the club as a whole. And I think that's why we may see them end up getting a ban as for the individual bans for the players I, I find this a very delicate and interesting situation given the four game ban that Messi still currently has hanging over him in the in the World Cup qualifiers and that was just for some verbals to a linesman I do think that he's right that he is going to get banned because other players have got banned for similar but the four games is certainly very harsh and when you're looking at players who are involved in throwing punches and maybe even some racist abuse and being other being highly uh, provocative as well, yeah, as well you highly, know? yeah, and other unsavoury acts, you've really got to question the consistency there in the, in the punishments being dished out by Commonwealth. And if I was Messi, well, for one, I'd take better penalties than him, but I'd also be looking at this situation very closely see what kind of deal he gets out of it. Because at the moment, it's certainly looking very harsh. No, I hear you. And Simon, I'll let you in on this one. And, you know, what we could have seen there could have been uh, another disaster in football had that fence come down. So few Palmyra supporters had had made the trip. You know, there was a a handful of them there. And certainly um, what we saw on the other side of that fence it was it was a highly sort of agitated and aggressive crowd, and potentially there could have been a disaster there. Yeah, I mean, players scrapping on the pitch is is one thing, and obviously it, it sends a really bad message. It's you know it's dangerous to a point, but you know these are football players. They're gonna they're only gonna do a certain amount of damage to each other. If we're looking purely in terms of the the physical impact of these kind of things. Uh, you know, a couple of football players throwing a punch and running away or, or slapping each other. Obviously, there has to be strong punishments and this has to stop. But the what can be really potentially fatal is having groups of fans. And especially when there's one uh, smaller group who's obviously very uh, jubilous, <laughs> jubilant of the, the win, um, potentially provoking. And again, not necessarily in a negative way, but, you know, enjoying their victory. A small group that's then suddenly surrounded by ten times the amount of of fans, and you know, fans in South American stadiums are often, you know, they've been enjoying a pre-game drink and perhaps some other substances, perhaps you know. And in terms of security, <laughs> we saw what was inside the stadium, but 
you know, these these fans aren't necessarily being frisked in a particularly effective way. You know, I've I've been to big games here in Colombia, and and you get searched, but you know, I've also seen I've stepped I've been for a thorough search, stepped inside the stadium, and seen children taking and basically children taking cocaine off a six foot machete a six inch machete you know so the real concern is um the for the fans and and for a lack of security in the stadium um if you know there has to be away fans there has to be away fans in the libertadores that you know whereas in domestic football in some south american leagues they they prevent away fans to enable for uh you know for security to, to function effectively but in, one of the good things about the Libertadores is even if it's only uh, 50 people, 100 people, they'll always make sure there's a section put aside for away fans. And if that's the case, they really need to be well protected. You know, there's going to be issues within within one particular fans group, you know, different barras in competition. And, and that's one thing. But when you have 50 people wearing a different color shirt and they've just won 3-2 against the home side, you know, there has to be real extensive provisions put in place for them to get out of the stadium get to a safe distance because you know fans in south america are, are crazy for the good and for the bad you know but all it takes is one guy who's had a had a few too many drinks has you know taken some substances and got through security to to have a murder in the stadium and unfortunately that isn't an exaggeration so yeah there has to be much you know much there has to be strong punishment for actions on the pitch that provoke these kind of actions um but the real concern for me is that the fans in the stadium especially away fans small groups of away fans aren't being protected i saw a few penuel fans running over to the to the to where the palmeiras fans were trying to prevent you know talk the talk the aggressive uh, palmeiras fans away from sorry uh, penuel fans away from the Palmeiras section, uh, which which is nice to see, a bit of sanity and all the madness. But yeah, for me, that's the biggest concern. Obviously, it's ugly to see these these scraps and these you know potential racial comments, which is horrible. But the most important thing is that people can go to the football and be safe, and and that's obviously a big concern when you see uh, fans pouring into you know away fan sections. And for your money, Simon, would you would you imagine that there's going to be a, basically a, a ban on fans for Peñarol? And, and I think they've won, Correct me if I'm wrong. I think they've won more home game, don't they? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think there think there should be. Um, it's obviously the partly the responsibility of the club to ensure that uh, the provisions are put in place. But you know, if the fans get punished, then you know it's it's the most influential fans in the stadium who are also the most potentially dangerous. You know, the heads of these main big 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 barras who create the great, amazing spectacle in these stadiums, but also, you know, from their leadership position, have a sense of competition and, a, you know, a bravado, a macho bravado they want to maintain, um, which can result in violence. So, you know, if, if they do have the stadium closed or if they do, you know, have limitations on certain areas of the stadium, which sometimes happens, the, the hardcore end of the stadium, you know, I think, I think that sends a message. And I think the people who will be most affected will be the, the fans who are most likely causing the trouble are most likely, uh, you know, instigating some of these worrying scenes. For me, as far as Penny at all is concerned, um, I think their final home match should be played behind closed doors um, for a multitude of reasons. For what Simon discussed, as far as the fans are concerned, you have to protect every fan that comes into the stadium, away fan, home fan, whatever. If you cannot guarantee protection, you can't do that. You know, these Palmetas fans were left to fend for themselves. 
and they had to hold those gates closed until help arrived. And that should not ever, ever, ever have to happen for away fans. You should be protected. You know, sometimes that's going to be very strong-handed protection, and it's going to make it painful to be an away fan at times. Uh, but you have to be protected. And if you're not, then, you know, that's a fault of both the club and the stadium. But as well, you know, stadium organizers made the decision as far as the players on the pitch were concerned to close the tunnel to the dressing room. You know, there's no argument for that. Palmeiras players didn't have anywhere to go. There were no police to protect them. And had they not had their own private security to protect them, you know, you're not talking scenes of, of grave danger, yeah. but they're going um, to be put in danger you know they have to have a place where they can retreat and yeri mina managed to take some photographer's equipment to defend himself (laughs) yeah they shouldn't you shouldn't be you shouldn't be brought to that point (laughs) you you shouldn't be brought to that point so i think peñadol will absolutely should have to play this final group stage match behind closed doors i would be in favor of them being banned from future editions of the libertadores but i don't think that it is actually it actually makes sense to disqualify them from this year's Libertadores, mainly based on the fact that doing so could actually har- harm Palmeiras. Because of the way that the group has structured, Palmeiras does not play Peñarol anymore. So disqualifying the Uruguayans from the competition would basically give three points to both Jorge Wilsterman and Atletico Tucumán. Palmeiras would still be in a good position to come out of this group. But three free points for their opposition would actually hurt Verdown. And it would it could bring not getting out of the group into question because they would still have two matches to play, whereas their opposition would only need to play one. So I actually think Penedol needs to be left in this year's competition for the sake of the competition to make sure that that group stays equal and stays fair. But I would not be opposed to a one or maybe even two-year ban on future Libertadores. Felipe Melo should absolutely receive a suspension. I think his actions were justified, but them being justified doesn't necessarily make them right. If you are the subject of racial abuse for one, even two matches, that's going to grate on you. Uh, And it certainly seemed like his actions were done in defense. I don't think there's a place for them at all on a football pitch, whether they're in defense or not. So there should be some sort of a ban, but I don't think it needs to be incredibly heavy handed. I think it needs to send a message, but I think the message mainly needs to be sent to Tepenyarol, who, by all accounts, seem to be the instigators of this incident. Something I also enjoyed right after the kind of the, the melee on the pitch after the match, there's a Penarol player being interviewed by Fox Sports on the pitch, and he had like this mobile Perspex uh, screen behind him. Did you see this? And like the Perspex screen fell on top of him, and he could just see the panic in his eyes. I, I, I think he thought that it was maybe Filippo Melo coming back for more, <laughs> jumping on top of it. So Guys, did, did you happen to notice? Um, I, don't, I don't know if you saw it. And to me, it was—I I forgot to mention it actually when, when when I was describing the thing. There was two um, two of the Peñarol players who were, were climbing the wire, at, at, you know, at the stadium where the Palmeiras fans were, almost encouraging their own fans, you know, to go get them, sort of thing. And I don't. I think it was actually later on in the evening because Brazilian TV covered this. As I say, the wife she was going to war. You thought Uruguay had invaded us uh, the way she was getting on. Um, you know, an attack on the Brazilian football teams, an attack on Brazil, uh, uh, such as the nationalism. But I, th- I thought that that was quite unsavory, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if there were suspensions coming the, the direction of those two players as well. You know, they were they were clearly you know hanging 
saying from from the wire, the the the, the link wire, uh, basically encouraging the Penyarol fans. I saw I saw that differently. I thought they were. Yeah. I thought they were trying to tell them to to back off. That's, yeah, that's I how I saw that. Well, you see, there, there you go with my Brazilian Sp- bias, bias on the television. <laughs> they were going to yeah. Spanish, kill everybody. Spanish. Well, certainly, certainly the coverage me and Simon got, yeah, sounds like the opposite of the, of the coverage you got. I, I, saw it, I saw it as Adam and Simon did as well. I thought that they were attempting to plead with them to not let that happen, which is a bit – obviously, that's the right thing for them to do, but it's a bit – shallow-minded when you see what they just done on the pitch and is what the point that you know both of you guys have brought up is that if the players are doing this on the pitch of course the fans are going to think that it's acceptable for them to do it in the stands it's the example that's set uh yeah no, it looked to me like again they they wanted to avoid that trouble uh from the stands and yeah another 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 quick point on this tom robinson who was on this pod last week uh, he 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 put an excellent tweet out this week actually, where where he said, yeah he he uh, he retweeted the BBC's article on this brawl at, at the end of the match and 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 he said you know it was another example of focusing primarily on the negative news coming out of South American football and yeah I, I thought that was a I thought that was a very insightful point actually because you know obviously this has ended up being like a key discussion on this pod but you know we've we've also pointed out here on the pod you know all the positive things about south american football and it is a shame that you certainly sort of the media outside of south america you know do tend to focus on these kind of yeah shocking in sort of inverted commas stories because you know especially when you think that in europe certainly in recent weeks you know there's been some pretty horrendous scenes there as well. For me, it's uh, it's like a narrative, you know. It's it's crazy South America, crazy South American football, oh. and often the stories that get traction in journalism in general conform to pre-existing, you know, generalizations or stereotypes. So those are the stories that really uh, get attack uh, attention because they don't require context. You don't really need to know who these players are. You don't need to know the story behind the club or you know what they're what they're doing in the league or it's something you can take in isolation and just put it within a context or put it within a you know a, a narrative of yeah, crazy south american football look at these guys well they're like <laughs> typical off we go again yeah it must it must yeah. be like that all the time you know it must because because that's all they hear they don't hear the good side of it they only hear that crazy side of it so and you can understand people's people's opinion being that if you if you if you're not sort of close to it you know, it's it's the only reportage or the only only word that you get on it is the negative. But as I say, there's so many wonderful games here. It's just a shame that something an incident like this overshadows it. Yeah, yeah I thought that Simon summed it up perfectly. Well, then I'll, I'll edit myself out, then, Mister Fucking Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> hang on, hang on. Let's just let's just remember here. Let's just remember. Eleven pieces of cheese. Yeah, just wanted to put that out there. Eleven pieces of meat. Yeah, we, we got we got to balance it out for him. <laughs> right. Well, here, listen. Leave that madness behind and let's move forward. So as we all might get to bed sometime this week. And the next game up was one I didn't actually see myself because I was watching Chapico. Uh, was Zulia one at Lanus one? Simon, I think you were on this one. Yeah. No, I watched I watched the Zulia Lanus game and and it was pretty good. Uh, Zulia have a lot of good things. Unfortunately, they're also missing a few important aspects of their game. But 
But generally, they played really, really well. I like the midfield of Zulia. They have some good players in there. Obviously, Juan Aranjo, the playmaker, uh, veteran playmaker, uh, sits quite deep for Zulia. Uh, he played further forward young in, in his younger days, but he's, uh, he's really classy. He's probably their most dangerous goal threat, but mostly from 45 yards, um, which is one of the key issues they have. They have a lot of good, interesting players. Uh, Orozco had a really good game. They had a very skillful, pacey winger. Uh, Moreno was good in the middle. They, you know, they had a lot of interesting players. Um, but the issue is that they lack a bit of a defensive leader to hold them together. And they lack a number nine to kind of give them that focal point up front. Everything in the middle is great. So they were unfortunate not to have scored more. So they took the lead. Uh, the ball broke clear and uh, Daniel uh, Rovigio hit a really nice, powerful volley, unstoppable volley from the edge of the box, flew in. And, and they were looking really good, Zulia. Unfortunately, Jose Sand, unfortunately for them, I've got a bit of a soft spot for Zulia now. I'm quite like them. Unfortunately for them, uh, Jose Sand scored a great goal, went to the right, cut to the left, cut to the right again, and then put one across the goalkeeper. A really nice finish from Lanús forward. Um, but I was impressed by Zulia. As I say, lots of the midfield teams to be some, a couple of, uh, you know, very technical, very strong, experienced veterans and lots of, small skillful guys buzzing around so there's lots of good things happening in that team but unfortunately they lack a bit of quality at the back uh, although they were much better in this game at home they, they do look much stronger at home in defense uh, and they lack that focal point up front so a good game uh lanus in the end will be will be satisfied to come from behind away in venezuela uh, with a point still c- keeps them in a good position in the group and uh zulia look like they might be struggling for qualification but They've played pretty well. And again, they were unfortunate not to win this game. Uh, did some good things. Have some interesting players. Some of their better players are quite lightweight, quite quite, uh, quite small, quite nippy. But yeah, they, they do lack a little bit. So I think they'll struggle to qualify. But I was quite impressed and I quite enjoyed this game. Listen, we'll move on to, to the other game in this group, uh, which saw Nacional whip Shabakonezi 3-0 Austin. And this was, this was a sad performance by Shabak. It really was. They just weren't at the races in this game at all. And it, it's just like they never even got into first gear, never mind out of it. Um, it, it was. I actually gave up on it um, at 2-0 and basically turned over to the River Plate game. Just given the, the quality of, of, of Shabako, you just, just knew were never getting back near this game from the minute they went behind. As I say, it was just a stale, horrible, flat performance. It was, and... Nacional were the deserved winners here. And this was actually a very interesting study in tactics. Um, Wegner Mancini, the Chapecoense manager, his team had won eight consecutive matches. Granted, a lot of those were in a much lesser state league, uh, but they were on a bit of a roll. Uh, and they had had a formation, they had a best 11, and, and they'd been playing well. And as we'd seen in this competition, you know, they'd shown well at points. Uh, the issue was then that Mancini decided coming into this match, Against the Nacional side that could really do with three points, you know, at home, he decided to, to put in three center backs and it, it didn't work. And Chapecoense struggled to possess the ball. It was actually a lot like what Palmeiras did in the first half of their match. And it had the same sort of effect in that it was not effective. Uh, Nacional scored first. They were 1-0 up. Then they scored second early on in the second half. Chapecoense then went down to 10. Nacional then made it 3-0, uh, and then to add insult to injury, Chapecoense went down to 9 uh, when when Hossi decided to uh, have a grab 
at an area that you should not have a grab at. Uh, it was a straight red card, deserved red card, and it was by far the worst performance we've seen from Chapecoense uh, in this tournament. Nacional, I thought, were effective. They were efficient. They're just tough to play against. You know, they are a stereotypical Uruguayan team. They'll defend. They are physical. They are hard-nosed. They've never stepped down from a challenge in their life. They've got a couple talented players. Uh, Ramirez, who scored their first goal, I think is a good player. They're strong at the back. They're difficult to break down. And I think, once again, Nacional, they're just going to be a difficult team to get out of this tournament. You know, I don't think they're going to go on and be champions. But a semifinal run from Nacional would in, not surprise me in the slightest. Uh, they're tough, and I think they're just going to be hard. It took penalties to get them out of this competition last year. Boca Juniors were able to do it. They've got a lot of that same core back, and I think it's going to be very interesting. And if I'm a group winner, and if I'm a team that's been high-flying, I do not want to see Nacional across from me in the round of 16 if they get out of this group because they just make it so difficult over 180 minutes to beat them. No, I think that's a, a fair assessment of them. They are a very durable side. Okay, so we'll move across then uh, into... Uh, Emelec against River Plate. River Plate run out 2-1 winners. And were, they were absolutely caught stone cold in this game. First minute, Emelec uh, scored. But it was almost like River never panicked about it. You always, you, you, this result, even 1-0 down the first minute, the way that, the way that uh, River played this game, it's probably one of the most impressive performances. I, I, I think that... Really, in this game, River really set down a marker. They seem to be getting better and better, and it's kind of ominous for for the for the rest of the teams in this tournament. As I say, some lovely passing movement. Again, it's it's not all there for them. You've got a, you've got a, a feeling there that you know it's still another bit to click. And when it does, it's it's going to be bloody good to watch. And they could be a very very hard team to shift at them. I think they're definitely going to go pretty far in this in this tournament from what we've seen so far. Um, in this game, Emelec certainly started the better side. Great goal inside 90 seconds from Erton Preciero. He's actually scored a very similar one, well, finish-wise anyway, very similar finish um, against Dim a couple of weeks ago in this in in this group, and uh, and he all and he set up a second as well, only for it to be ruled out for for offside. And it was around that point that River certainly came into the game a bit more. And it was a fine strike to equalise from Moreira for River just before the break. Um, and that was probably deserved on balance. Um, second half saw the Argentines start the better. And uh, Alario, the ever-impressive Alario, really should have made it 2-1. But he, he actually fluffed a, a one-on-one, which was surprising, to say the least. River missed another chance soon after that. Then... Emelec came back into the game. They missed a couple as well. And at this point, it's a really entertaining match. It looks like it could go either way. Dreer makes an excellent save. I think it might have been from Alari over the first shot. The ball somehow stays in. It was actually a mistake, I think, from Mina on the, on the Emelec side, which kept the ball in. And the ball sort of came back to Alario, and he, and he couldn't really miss from seven yards. Slotted it nicely. Past uh, past Dreer in the uh, in the Emelec goal, Preciado, the ever impressive Preciado for Emelec. 
he was a danger all night. I, I don't think River ever really found a way to deal with him. And he had a couple more efforts. Unfortunately for Emelec, he couldn't quite find the net. Yeah, I, I thought that Pressier was unfortunate to be on the losing side. Emelec pushed right until the end. They even sent their keeper up on a free kick free kick in the last second. Nearly got his head to it. That would have been an incredible way to end this game if, if he had connected with it. On balance, I actually thought this game deserved to, to end all square. But, you know, River just had that little bit of extra quality up front, uh, which made all the difference. And, and that's kind of the story of this Libertadores so far, you know. Quite often, the better Argentine and Brazilian sides just have that extra little bit of quality to, to see them through at the moment. And certainly, like, you know, Emelec is not a place that many teams will go in this competition and come away with three points. You know, you, you saw it maybe a little bit more even than I saw it. I just always felt, Adam, that River were in control of this. They never looked flustered. They never looked rattled. You know, as I say, they, they fell behind very early. Um, you, you know, the whole game to pull it back. And I don't know, just watching it, I never had any doubt that, that, that they were going to win it. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised at that, to be honest. I, I saw it as a lot. I, I saw it as a game which could have gone either way. Okay, so we'll move into our penultimate game, which saw Sports Boys go down uh, 3-1 to one to Goidoy Cruz. Uh, as I say, I was watching the River game, so I didn't see very much of this one. And then I was wrestling a snake in my kitchen, so uh, even the bit that I could have seen was sort of wasted on me. Uh, I saw it, uh, it was 1-0 and I came back, it was 3-1, so I missed anything of relevance in it. O- okay, Adam, how, how did you see this one? Yeah, I missed the first half as... Um... As I was watching that Emelec River game, but I, I did catch the second, and I, th- I think the thing that we need to point out here is the fact that um, Javier Asco Gorda uh, was the, the manager of Sport Boys, was replaced hours before this one, and um, and that somewhat hindered the Bolivians. I think Asco Gorda is a legend of Bolivian football. He's from the best country in Spain, but he's the manager. When uh, when Bolivia qualified for the 1994 World Cup, um, he also got Bolivar to the semi-finals of this competition in 2014. I think that Sport Boys have actually played pretty well in this Lippard story so far. So I, I, I felt that his uh, his dismissal, as it, it looks like, I wasn't sure at first whether he resigned or he was dismissed, but it looks like he was dismissed, and I think that's that's quite harsh. Anyway, going into this game. Going into the details of this game, Godoy Cruz certainly deserved the win. Just before half-time, Angel Gonzalez uh, profited from a terrible mistake from the Sport Boys goalkeeper. Uh, Sport Boys goalkeeper just sort of came out to sort of the edge of the box, completely misjudged the bounce of the ball. The ball looped over his head and Gonzalez was just ran behind him and said thank you very much and, and tapped home to, to give Godoy Cruz the lead. That's his third goal in the Libertadores. And and he looks quite a talent, actually, as does Javier Correa, Javier Correa, sorry, who's also a very decent player for them in the attack as well. He was a danger all night. He hit the bar before the opener in that first half. Um, in the second half, Godoy Cruz were... Yeah, they they really showed their class. Uh, and I thought this was a very impressive performance all round from the Argentines. Juan Gara, who um, the commentators were saying is a local lad, spent, you know, he, he grew up near Mendoza, and spent all his career there, and he scored their second midway through the second half. And you could see that it meant a lot to him. And I think especially given he had missed the sitter 
um, just moments earlier as well. Jerson Cordova, uh, Colombian, he got one back for for the Bolivians just before he he got sent off for for an ugly elbow. It was a it was a very uh, hero to villain moment for him in the space of a minute. And Godoy Cruz sealed the game late on through Jimenez, who I thought had a shocker actually for the away side. Um, he's he's like their he's, he wears Simon's favourite shirt. Uh, it's kind of their number ten, uh, but he he fluffed. From what I saw, he fluffed about three great chances and also managed to hit a shot that almost went out for a throw in. But Fox named him man of the match at the end, which was kind of surprising. But yeah, overall, Godoy Cruz maybe a little bit of a dark horse in this competition. Aside from Mendoza, you know Mendoza's city isolated really in the west of Argentina, you know, it's going to be a difficult place for for teams to get to and go to. I, f- I feel that they've been kind of quietly efficient in this tournament. Ten points from four games is one of the most impressive records in this competition so far. And I, and I think they could be a team to watch going forward. But it's funny, Adam, we're starting to talk about uh, these Argentine teams. You know, we mentioned earlier on the pod about, you know, the fact that the delayed start of the season and whatnot. But the Argentine teams are starting to look more of a threat. Um, you know, we, we've talked a lot about the amount of Brazilian sides and that, you know, they're, they're considered the favourites and so on. But the Argentinians are starting to step up to the mark. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I, I think it was kind of obvious, wasn't it, in that in that first week or two that the Argentine sides were, were definitely hindered by the fact their league season hadn't started at that point. No, indeed. Well, listen, we'll, we'll move on into our final game of, of the, the round. And Austin, I'll come to you on this one. Uh, Gremio, very impressive 4-1 winners over Guarani. Um, you know, we've talked in this pod about Gremio in the past and you know, they can be a bit jackal and hide. You never know what you're going to get with them. Well, they, well, you got the best of them, I think, in this game. 100%. This was, I think, the best Gremio have looked. And outside of River Plate, maybe the best that any team has looked in this competition to me. This was a clinical performance from Gremio. This was a strong performance from Gremio, and they were well-deserved 4-1 winners in this match. Uh, they started quick, and they finished strong. Lucas Barrios, the Paraguayan international, had himself a hat trick. He moved to Gremio at the start of this year. He'd kind of gotten boxed out of playing time at Palmeiras. Uh, took him a little bit to find his footing, but he found it in this match. He had a hat trick, all just very well-taken goals, well-created goals, team efforts, the majority of them. Uh, Gremio scored an own goal for Guarani's only goal. Uh, Guarani were the victim uh, of what I felt to be a harsh red card uh, near near halftime. Uh, Camacho was sent off for an elbow, kind of, to the head of a Gremio player. But it was in a situation where they were kind of tangled. He was looking to take a free kick quickly after it had been given. And he kind of reacted and sent his arm back. It made contact with the head. Uh, the official gave a red card. I wouldn't have been opposed to just a yellow there or maybe even a stern talking to. Uh, and that pretty much ensured that that Guadani were not getting back in this match. At that point, they were 2-1 down. They'd seen Gremio miss a penalty. Luan, who's certainly one of the talents to watch for, had his penalty well saved by Aguilar. Uh, it wasn't a poorly taken penalty. Obviously, he didn't convert it, uh, but it was a good save by the Guadani goalkeeper. But then right before halftime, uh, the big center back, Pedro Jaramel, came forward and flicked on a header for 3-1 off a corner. 
And that was the end of this one. Barrios finished off his hat trick in the second half. It was a 4-1 definitive result for Gremio. I thought they were very impressive. I think this team has a lot of attacking talent. They came into this match. If you remember last week, they had rested players against Guarani. They got a point out of that result, but that was a reserve side. That actually didn't work out for them. They were eliminated from the uh, from the the Rio Grande do Sul State League by Novo Hamburgo. Uh, so I guess they were pretty upset about that. And so their manager, Renato Gaúcho, sent out a very attacking team. Pedro Rocha, Luan, Bolaños, and Lucas Bajos all started for Gremio. That's four very attack-minded players. And it paid off. And it showed. And they played very, very well. I think they're pretty much guaranteed to come out of this group now. They'll need one point from their final two matches to guarantee that. And even then, they could still get out if they lose both. I think Gremio have been the most impressive Brazilian side to me with this performance. Maybe not the most consistent, but they're they're definitely a name to watch out for going forward in this competition. Okay, that basically just wraps us up for this week, guys. Um, as I say, another super week and a, a lot to talk about, a lot to talk about this week. Uh, so we've rambled on a little bit longer than usual. But listen, just plugs and mentions before we go very quickly. Adam, I'll come to you first. Where can we find you? Anything you want to plug? Anything you're working on? Far away. Yeah, you can find me at Canadian Scores. Just another quick plug for the hashtag WFI. That's W-F-E-Y-E. So if you want to share any photos of football culture on there, please do so. There we go. And Simon, yourself, uh, where can we find you on 11 pieces of cheese and 11 pieces of meat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Barry Venison, this one. Um, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> Barry Butcher. Carol <laughs> <laughs> uh, Pop. Pork, pork, pork. Okay, I give up. <laughs> yeah, give up. No, just stick, stick with the plugs. <laughs> okay, so I'm on Twitter at Simon Edwards SAF, uh, doing, you know, Colombian football stuff mostly. Uh, I think I'm going to speak to Frank Fabula, something for the website, uh, maybe if the audio as well, for any Spanish speakers. Uh, shortly, Boca Juniors and Colombia player. Been linked with Man United. Interesting to see if something goes to Europe soon, but. Very good fullback, and I'm going to do something with him quite soon, I think. So check that out. Hopefully, he spared that in dignity. But uh, <laughs> moving on, um, Austin, yourself, what are we up to? Where can we find you? Far away. I am at Austin underscore James 906 on Twitter. Plenty of stuff going on there. Uh, my now annual and never correct uh, Brazil Down preview. Should be coming out on WFI in a week or so once I get around to actually doing it. Uh, I'm very bad at doing it. I've not been particularly successful, uh, but I give it a try every year. You're meant to be plugging it here. <laughs> you know, putting people oh, I give it a try. It's a fun read. It's fun to do. And I think yeah, it's a hard league to predict. Yeah, you know. predictions predictions in South American football Especially are very a, difficult. A 38-match season when you know that Every team is going to be different by the end of it, uh, but it's a fun exercise. Uh, we'll see what comes out of that. So that look for that on WFI. We'll see if I can get even close to being correct. But yeah, at Austin underscore James 906 on Twitter. And no doubt the season will be full of sidewinders and golf claps. So, so there you are. From, from my own point of view here, just all the no, normal shows right in WFI this week. Um, as I say, we're, we're starting to push the Patreon again. You'll be starting to hear that on podcasts and uh, we'll have a little insert from, for that from next week. 
basically along the lines of of keeping our, our running costs going and, and getting a few people to help out with with putting content out and so on so that's basically where we're going with that um, and the reason why you'll hear a little bit about that but listen just thanks to the guys for their time as always especially considering my as i say my internet dropped last night on me and and uh, we had to cancel, so good enough. And thank you very much for doing it again tonight, uh, guys. Very much appreciated. And just yourself, a listener. Thank you so much for listening. Until next week, it's goodbye from everybody here. Bye.